Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. I'm Andrew Brokus, and in case you couldn't tell from the episode number, we are bringing you today one of our long-lost episodes. For those who don't know the story, there was a brief period in 2014 when the Thinking Poker Podcast was part of the Poker News Podcast feed. Those episodes have been unavailable for a long time, but now, thanks to listener, former guest, and all-around good guy, Russ Fox, we finally got those episodes and can share them with you. So that's what you're getting today, our 2014 interview with the World Poker Tour's Tony Dunst. Do keep in mind, it's an old interview. I'm going to do my best to scrub the old ads, etc. from it, but uh, anything that's mentioned during the show, if there's any like offers or upcoming events or anything like that, uh, that was six years old. It's not referring to things from this year. Do want to let you know also that uh, Russ Fox, who hooked us up with the files for these old episodes, um, he's not just a hero and a good friend, he's also my tax guy, and he could be your tax guy too. Check him out at ClaytonTax.com. Uh, he specializes in poker and gambling, and he does a great job. Easy to work with, good communicator, reasonable rates, highly recommended. Uh, before we get to the interview, we do have a new sponsor I'm excited to tell you about. It's Learn Pro Poker, the training site from two-time thinking poker guest Ryan LaPlante. Ryan is that rare talent who is a great poker player and a great teacher and communicator. He plays a really unique style. Maybe you've heard uh, Carlos talk about this before, um, but his approach to the game is very much in tune with my own, which is to say that it's informed by game theory, but uh, heavily exploitative. So he talks about what the like game theory baseline should be, and then also how you should deviate from it to exploit different types of players. And he deviates a lot and tells you how to think about that, which is great. Uh, I'm a member of the site myself. I get a lot out of it, and I think you will too. We would not promote anything to you that we didn't think was a great product. Uh, believe me, I turned down a lot of spammy advertising requests. Um, we've got an affiliate link in the show notes, or you can just go to thinkingpoker.net slash LPP. That stands for Learn Pro Poker. Thinkingpoker.net slash LPP, and we will auto-magically redirect you via our affiliate link. It would be a great way to support the show and improve your poker skill, get access to some cool new concepts in the process. Encourage you to check that out. Now enjoy this interview with Tony Dunst from 2014. Danger is episode 90 of the Thinking Poker podcast. I am Andrew Brokus coming to you from Catonsville, Maryland, and with me is Nathan Mavis. How are you this evening? I'm good. I'm happy to be back, although you guys, uh, I don't know if you even need me anymore. <laughs> uh, we need you as little as you and Leo need me. How about that? <laughs> I, I think you'd have a hard time pinning Gareth down uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, that's right. Hey, one day, maybe we should just have Gareth and Leo do the show, though. Really, really cross people up. <laughs> um, well, that's actually funny you mentioned that because I was thinking we are getting close to our 100th episode. 
Um, and I don't know if that would be the, the single best way to celebrate, but I think we ought to do something special for the 100th episode. Um, I have a, a few ideas. I imagine you have a few as well, but uh, I'd kind of like to hear also what our listeners think we ought to do for the 100th episode. Um, what do you think, you know, especially for people who are kind of uh, familiar with the show, you know, what do you think would make a fitting celebration of episode 100? Um, so actually, uh, well, two things I'd like to get from you. Uh, one is your ideas. And the second, and this is already something that, that I think, uh, or an idea I had um, that I don't imagine will be controversial with you, Nate, although this is the first you're hearing of it, um, is I think it would be cool to get some NickCast stories from our listeners, uh, hear about the nitty things that you've done, the things you do to keep your expenses down. Uh, if you can send those to us at podcast.thinkingpoker.net along with, um, you know, if you have strategy hands, if you have questions for us, et cetera, um, all of that can come into podcast at thinkingpoker.net. But I think it would be cool to try to collect some listeners' uh, NickCast moments for episode 100 and share those, share some of our favorites on the air. Yeah, absolutely. And some people send these to us already. We like them. We'll, we'll take more. Yeah, we've got a, this isn't really a NickCast story. We've got a, a doozy of a story coming up <laughs> a little later on the show. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's great. <laughs> uh, while we're asking you for stuff, there are a couple of other ways that you can support the show as well. First and most important is keep listening. Uh, we love watching those listener numbers go up. Uh, really, even, even, I mean, neither Nate nor myself is in this for the money, which is good because we're not making a fortune off of it. Uh, really, the most satisfying thing for us is just seeing the number of, uh, of listeners go up and you know, secondarily hearing from listeners with your, with your questions, with your hands, even just people who write to say that they enjoy the show or have a suggestion for how to improve the show. Uh, we love all of that stuff. The second, yeah, sorry, I, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I jump in? Actually, the quality of the listeners is even more gratifying to me than the number because the numbers go go up and down week to week. What's What's amazing is the 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 quality of the comments and the emails we get, and 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 that. But anyway, that's just an aside. <laughs> Uh, so now that we're done buttering you up, um, you also, if you would like to support us financially, the best way to do that is to check out the premium podcasts at nickcast.com. You can find uh, upwards of five hours of Nate and myself talking tournament poker strategy. That's available for $19 at www.nickcast.com. And finally, if you are shopping on Amazon, you can use our Amazon affiliate link Go to thinkingpoker.net. There's a tab called Support the Podcast. And on there, you can find links for Amazon.com, C-A-D-E-F-R-E-S-I-T, depending on which uh, which of those countries you're in. Um, and you know, just uh, you don't have to go out of your way to buy anything. But when you're doing uh, any shopping on Amazon, or if you're doing any shopping on Amazon, go ahead and use those affiliate links, and Nate and I will get a little kickback off of that. Sounds good. And we have... Uh, guest who i think will be popular on the show this week yeah. i mean he's already popular but i think people like the uh, the interview yeah i, I was gonna say we, we, sh we should get around to, to what we're going to give our listeners which is uh, a, a healthy dose of tony bondatine dunce tonight yeah I, I i met tony when i had just woken up because i was a cash game player and so i was almost nocturnal that summer and uh yeah i woke up my housemates were having a party I stumbled out and some people were shooting pool and most people were dressed the way poker players were dressed in the summer. And Tony was uh, uh, happily drunk and shooting pool and wearing a suit, of course. <laughs> and he said, hi, I'm Bond. And uh, we, we, we've been friendly ever since. <laughs> never never hung out tons, but he's a, he's a great guy. And uh, the, the Tony you see on TV is 
although he's definitely on TV, that's that's the real him. That's the real deal. I met Tony, I think it was at the 2007 World Series of Poker. Um, I was playing the $5,000 six max. I think it was the first preliminary event I'd ever played. It was the first time I'd ever sold action. And uh, Timex had half of me, uh, Mike McDonald. And I think it was because I've never actually met Mike in person. Um, so it must have been that I was getting the money from uh, Mike Watson. And while I was doing that, uh, they also had a piece of Tony. I don't know if they're still the ones backing him, but at that time they were they were backing Tony. So uh, Tony showed up at the same time that I did to collect money from from Mike Watson and Mike introduced us. And we knew each other from from talking on the two plus two MTT forum. So we talked for a few minutes and then we were like, OK, hey, better go to our tables and took out our seating cards. And it turned out that he was sitting on my immediate right. Um, so that was a bit of a, a bit of a drag. I mean, it was, it was nice to have someone to talk to and we hang out during breaks and stuff, but it was definitely not the softest table in the world. Uh, although the 5k six max is not the softest tournament in the world anyway. No, but, but you wound up, uh, in some Timex on Timex violence there. Yeah. I think the, the biggest beat there was for, was for Mike. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure at that time there were too many tournaments that didn't have a lot of Timex on Timex violence, but, but that, that was a pretty severe instance of it, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, Tony's a, a great guy. I think we had a great conversation with him. He was kind enough to uh, take a little time out from a vacation that he was on to talk to us. Um, so, you know, if, if you'll pardon, I think he and ho- hopefully we're able to clean up a lot of this in editing. His, his voice comes in and out a very little bit when we're talking because I think he's on like a hotel Internet connection. But uh, the, the, the content is is at 120 percent. The sound quality is at 90 to 95 percent. Um, and I, I think it's it's more than worth uh, more than worth whatever minor interruptions to your listening pleasure might occur. Yeah. So so the interview is at 108 to 112 percent. And if that's not good <laughs> enough for you, then I don't know what to tell you. Or 114. Sorry. <laughs> Tonight's strategy sponsor is Tournament Poker Edge, and I actually just realized that there's a new series from me appearing now, so I need to get over on there and answer some questions that people have asked about this. Uh, It's the first video that I've made dealing with a small stakes tournament. This one is coming from a $20 scoop tournament that I got kind of deep in. This was a Sunday tournament during the scoop, so outlasting 20,000 people only counts as kind of deep in this tournament. Uh, I didn't like final table or anything, but I I played quite a few hands. And you will get to see how I adjust to some some weaker opponents and and the kinds of really, really casual players that you find in a $20 tournament. I think this is going to surprise some people. I do a lot of things that you supposedly can't do at the small stakes, uh, such as bluffing. Um, And I really think that this is going to be eye-opening, especially for people who are small stakes players. And you are going to find it only at tournamentpokeredge.com. All right. So we've got a hand from Ron today, and this hand comes from the Tulip Casino. It's a 1-2 No Limit game. It's not a hand. It's just an awesome story. Excuse me. Your hand's coming later. And uh, a guy had a, had a strange-looking card protector, and everyone at the table was curious. It turned out he was in a shop accident and cut off one knuckle of his finger a while back. He put it in some kind of preservative inside this little glass container and now uses it, that is, his own <laughs> preserved knuckle, <laughs> as his card protector. So... Ron wants to know the strangest thing you've seen at a poker table. Go. Yeah, I have I uh, have my doubts that anyone is going to be able to top this. Um, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if, if you think you have a, a better story or a story that even rivals this for weirdest thing you've seen at the poker table, feel free to send that in, podcast at thinkingpoker.net. Um, but I, I mean, prove me wrong. I, I have my doubts that we're going to get too many things weirder than this. Yeah, so... 
if by thing you mean object, then I think we will not get weirder than no, this. I mean, if I'll, by I'll thing, take I mean, I know there's some weird stuff that happened, but this is this is pretty freaking weird. Yeah, it is weird. You you posted that story on the blog uh, a while ago where there was some sort of notorious guy at your local card room who had gotten like yeah, banned for true. for soiling himself on purpose at a at a poker table. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's pretty weird. And I, ha- I have heard one or two other stories like that. You know, people people peeing under the table. Um, I yeah. have heard of that kind of stuff happening. Yeah, but that, I mean, I think that's less weird than that. Like most of the urination stories I've heard are are people urinating on the dealer in anger for for dealing a bad beat but um yeah i mean i've seen some very very strange behavior okay well i mean I'll, I'll be happy to hear any story that's approximately as weird as this <laughs> Sounds good. i think so, i think i will enjoy it and we'll be happy to read it on the air and i guess that yeah. this, this is kind of a strategy tip i would imagine some of his opponents were sufficiently unsettled by this to play less well against him than they otherwise would have yeah probably um, so if you're out there with your own knuckle preserved, <laughs> that would be awesome if that guy was a listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. We want to have you on the show. And yeah, I, I need to see a picture we... though. I'm, I'm not going to believe if some random person just emails me and is like, Hey, I'm the knuckle guy. I need to see a picture. You need to see the picture. And I would consider making that part of episode 100. I don't know about, yeah, I don't know sure. about you. All right, you wanna you wanna jump into a hand? Yeah, this one actually comes to us from Andrew, not me. This is an Andrew who's lucky enough to be able to play on Poker Stars on a regular basis. Uh, this Andrew is playing the Poker Stars nightly $165 tournament. Uh, he says I didn't have much of a read on this villain, other than that he was playing well and standard. Uh, this hand occurs pretty close to the bubble. Um, and uh, Andrew also adds, and I, I think this is true, that especially at this stage of the tournament, there are a lot of at least decent regulars who are who are playing. Um, and not that there aren't weak players who enter this tournament. By the time you get to the bubble, there there is a, a decent number of people who have a, a pretty good idea what they're doing in this in this tournament. Um, blinds are at five hundred thousand. Our hero has 45 big blinds and is in second or third place. Villain has 33 big blinds and is the, in the middle of the pack somewhere. And uh, there are quite a few short stacks at the table. Again, it's probably a function of us being on the bubble. Um, but the big blind has only 7,000 chips or seven big blinds. Under the gun has 9,000. The button has 13K. So there are a lot of um, you know, people with fewer than 15 big blind stacks. Our hero is dealt king-queen suited, under the gun plus one. There's one fold. Hero opens to 3,000. And I think already we have something to discuss here. Yeah, I think my standard open would be smaller than this. And especially with these short stacks at the table, um, there's not a whole lot that three big blinds is going to accomplish that two and a half or even less won't. So I think... um, you know, whereas sometimes on the show I'm I'm saying that sometimes people are taking the small opening races thing too far. I think this is a, a spot where uh, it's good to make it two and a half or so big blinds. What do you think? Yeah, this is the reason why I emphasized how many short stacks were at the table, and in particular the fact that the big blind only has seven thousand. I mean, the big the big blind is the player who's going to be most likely to call as opposed to raise or fold when you when you raise. And so I think that. Um, 
that's the player who's going to be most sensitive to the size of your race. Not that the size of your race doesn't affect whether people three bet you, but um, the the fact that the big blind is short along with several other people at the table all have stacks where they're really not going to be flatting a race. Um, I think you're much better off just opening smaller. I would just do minimum here. I don't think there's even a reason to do 2.5. Um, I, I think I would just open you know, whatever I was going to raise here to 2,000. And once you use that smaller size, then you can also open more hands as a result of that. Uh, I do think that whatever you open, you have to be prepared to call a shove from the big blind. You have to be prepared to call a shove from um, really the, even the player who has 13K. There aren't too many hands. I think you should be min-raising and then and then folding to a shove for 13 big blinds, um, at least not from, from under the gun one. So um, you, you are going to need a hand that's going to have okay equity against you know whatever those those people's ranges are going to be for shoving. But I think that you can open, or I mean, I know that you can open more hands if you open for two thousand than for three thousand, and especially on the bubble when there's a reasonable chance that the big blind who only has seven big blinds is going to fold, like much higher chance than after the bubble. Um, I really think that being able to raise more hands is a, is a pretty significant thing. Agreed. So there are two folds, and then the cutoff calls the 3,000, and then there are three folds. And just a reminder, so, that the, the cutoff began the hand with 33K, so he's calling not quite 10% of a stack, but but close to it. And and also as a reminder, the hero has king-queen suited, king-queen of clubs. Um, so I, I think the, the, the cutoff's call is pretty strong, especially from, from a decent player. Um, we mentioned already that the big blind has a stack that he could shove. So mm-hmm. for the cutoff to call the 3,000 here, like not only is he risking... 10% of his stack, which, which you kind of need a good hand to justify just cold calling for, for 10% of your stack in the first place, um, or 9% or whatever this is. But uh, on top of that, there's no guarantee he's going to see the flop for only 3,000 chips. And there, there's a reasonable chance that the big blind is, uh, or the button for that matter, only has 13K. There's a reasonable chance that someone behind is, is going to shove, which is going to reopen the betting and give you an opportunity to raise again. Certainly, even if you fold, he's going to be priced in to call those other people. I think the cutoff needs a pretty decent hand to, to call. Uh, I'm not going to say he like definitively has aces, but I don't think we're going to see, or we certainly we certainly should not see like eight seven suited or even king jack offsuit. I think from a, from a good player. Yeah, and I think this is therefore a situation where uh, even though you there's an argument to be made that his range is capped and yours isn't. Although I'm not even sure that his range is all that capped. Um, I do think his strange, his range is stronger than heroes. Would you agree with that? I would. Yeah. Just the, the not having fold equity is, is so significant here. The, the fact that when you raise, there's a decent chance you're just going to win the pot without a showdown. And, and he doesn't have that opportunity really forces him to have a strong hand or to be a loose player. But the, the indication is that this, this guy knows what he was doing. So he, he really ought to just have a strong hand here. Yeah, and a lot of loose players stop being loose when it's the bubble. And so, so that means generally that I, I would be thinking in terms of not continuation betting too much, but Hero mm-hmm. ends up getting a really nice flop. Uh, so with 8,300 in the pot, we see a Jack of Clubs, Nine of Hearts, Four of Clubs flop, giving our Hero a gut shot, a flush draw, and two over cards to the board, although you know, we, I think we do have to take into account the possibility that the, the cold caller has queens are better, in which case heroes over cards are not necessarily live. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And uh, our hero starts by checking. I think that's interesting. I like checking a lot of hands here. When, when you're out of position and your range is worse than the other guys, then I think that's a good time to check. Uh, there's a separate question of whether Hero's range is still worse than the other guys on Jack-9-4 two-tone. I, I, I would say it is, probably. Uh, do, 
Do you think so? Yeah, I, I think this should smack villains range pretty hard. Um, it's a you know very good flop for nines and for jacks are better. It's a pretty good flop even for tens. Um, with, I mean, the, a jack is as innocuous and overcard as it gets for for pocket tens. Uh, and I, I do think that those big pairs should be a significant chunk of villain range. It's a pretty bad flop for eights or worse. Uh, but I really like I think it would be a pretty big mistake for for villain to flat call this race with like pocket fives. Um, that's I, not to say that there aren't some people who could be described as good regulars who might do that. Um, but I don't think that's a good call pre flop at all. Yeah. I agree. Um, and then I think that Ace Jack is a, is a hand that villain can plausibly play this way. I wouldn't be shocked to see Ace Queen played this way, although I think he might err on the side of three betting it. Even Ace King is, is possible. So I do think there are some some air balls that are possible for villain, but I, you know, I don't think villain should have King Queen in his range. I don't think he should have King Ten. Not that this is even a terrible flop for King Ten. Certainly not for Queen Ten. But I don't think we're really going to see those sorts of hands from villain. Yeah. So in in summary, is it fair to say that villain has almost all the good hands you can have, possibly not including a few combinations of, of aces and kings? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, but he's also less likely to have a whole lot of the garbage that you'll have. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yes. the pocket fives, the maybe the ace six suited you might have sometimes. You know, the hands like this. I think that's so, a very good way of breaking it down. Yeah. So I, I would like to check here with a lot of hands. That said, I'm not sure I want to check all my hands here. So so how would I go about constructing a, a, a betting range? Well, I would think about whether I well when I when I chose whether to have a betting range, I would I would think about whether I would want to continuation bet some of my whiffs, and I certainly would. I, I would like to win sometimes with the worst hand here, and I think betting the flop is a reasonable way to do that. And I would also think about hands that um, don't want to get pot controlled against and and generally um, can play well in 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 bigger pots. I think King Queen suited is is one of them. Um, whether or not it makes a flush, it can it can play well in bigger pots. It can bet three bet. It can go bet 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 when it hits or when it doesn't. Um, I think I mean especially when it hits. And in general, I think. Um, I think King Queen suited is a is a pretty strong candidate to to put in a betting range. Um, it's it's good and it plays fine if you blow up the plot the pot. I think. Now, do, you, does that sound reasonable? But you you mentioned bet three bet, and I know that wasn't a, a central part of your argument. Um, and I, I mean, in some sense, I do think King Queen suited is a. I mean, obviously, it's a strong enough hand to to do that with. But I don't know that I would be that thrilled to get raised on this flop holding king-queen suited, or that I would expect very much full equity if I got raised on this flop. I, I, I'm having trouble envisioning hands that villain would, would raise fold here. Yeah, but you're not, it's not a hand like queen-jack where bet-three-betting would be very poor, I think. Yeah. And bet-calling would be a pain. I mean, with king-queen suited, you can bet-three-bet, and you're you're gonna have enough equity, and you're not going to be in a situation where getting raised leaves you very badly off uh out of position you're, you're in a situation where you can put the money in and that's 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 fine uh you you don't love doing that on the bubble especially there are icm considerations here but it's not it's not a hand that suffers particularly from from getting raised um whereas a lot of one one pair hands will does that make sense you know, I, I guess the more that I think about it, I'm not convinced I, I want to have a betting range here at all. Um, 
the, like this seems to me like I don't, I don't think I want to bet here if I have ace king or ace queen that just whiffed entirely. Um, I guess like if I have queen ten suited, I'd like to bet that um, or ten eight suited. Other than that, I can't think of too many hands like too many hands that are air that I would want to or you know that, that don't have showdown value already that I would want to bet on the flop. You wouldn't want to bet ace two suited or okay or no something? yeah I guess if I if I if I had a, a flush draw of something I guess I, I really only want to bet here with with draws or with made hands and I think I'm going to have a lot more made hands than draws and I think that um, if I I, I think this this is a rare instance where like if I bet my range is is kind of too strong. Um, yeah, although, and and I, I'm kind of you, talking in circles though because then that would just mean that I should be able to bet hands like Ace Queen sometimes or like some of them. Well, yes and no. I mean, you can have a strong betting range without that range being big and without that being able to to balance out a lot of bluffs, yeah, right? True. Yeah. So. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it isn't the worst thing here to have no betting range. I, yeah, especially given that your range, well, but how how weak is our range really? Like like, is there an inconsistency in what we're saying before the flop and on the flop? Like, we probably can't be opening you know king six of diamonds here, given that we're going to get shoved on a lot right before the flop. Yeah, I, I think I would I think I would fold king six of diamonds. Yeah, I, I do think. Well, and you know, we're also talking about. Our range, our raises, our ranges. Assuming that, I mean, I'm I'm kind of thinking if I had opened to two thousand, opening to three thousand is, is definitely restricting hero's range. I think that you know, hero opening to three thousand under the gun plus one, I wouldn't be surprised if this player doesn't have ten eight suited or queen ten suited in his opening range, which and, and or like ace deuce of clubs, um, which makes me like betting even less. I, I think there are just there are very few hands. I, I just don't think you can bet this flop without a lot of equity, and you're going to be check folding the flop so often when you have ace king or ace queen or pocket sixes that um, I, I think you probably just ought to check all your strongest hands as well and expect that villain is very often going to have a hand good enough to bet for value, and when he doesn't, he I mean, he really ought to bluff given how strong his range is and, and how much you're going to be check folding. So I, I don't think there's a lot of reason, the, the more I think about it, to, to bet this flop at all, especially if you open for, for 3,000 in early position and, and limit the amount of, um, of of draws or yeah draws that you could have. That's interesting. How do you think villains should respond to a bet with ace-queen or pocket eights? Uh, yeah, I think he should be folding. Okay. I, I just so, don't think he's going to have those hands at all. Okay. Really, you don't think he'll have those hands? Um, I, 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 right. think, I think you'll have that. exactly eights and ace queen. Um, I don't, I, I, th- I don't think there are like hands like that though. I think those are the hands. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, I, I guess I was thinking that I would have some error. I would like to bet this flop at least sometimes with very little equity, but now I don't think I should do that. So, so now I'm back to maybe thinking that checking every hand is a good play. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what, what hero ended up doing here, which was, Checking and then shoving over a bet is is pretty good. Um, you know, I, I guess that we we could also discuss. Do you want to have a, a check calling and a check raising range? Um, I can't think of a lot of hands that I'd want to check call on this flop as opposed to just check shove. Yeah. Um. Queen check. Yeah. Um. Other hands like that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about what about pocket tens? Yeah, I, again, I think like so. Pocket tens, queen jack. I guess king jack is the same hand as queen jack. Um, jack ten. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so I mean, ten, I, I guess in that case, you ought to have some. Um, I can actually just see check folding ten nine. Okay. I mean that that might be on the on the nittier side, but. Um, yeah, for half pot, it's it, here. Here would be nice to have more of a read, like if. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, I could see ten, I could see folding ten nine. I mean, I, I think with with stacks being what they are, and with it being the bubble also. I mean, the, the check shove. I don't know how many hands. Like, I don't know how much the bubble dynamic actually comes up, which is part of the reason why Andrew sent this hand. Is he was asking, he, he was thinking that it involves some interesting bubble dynamics, and I think that does play into villain's preflop calling range, maybe, um, and it, it plays into the the opening size and what your opening range should be with with short stacks and the big blind. I don't know how much it plays into pressuring the villain after the flop because I don't know how many hands villain is gonna you know how many better hands than this villain is gonna bet for the flop and then fold fold to a shove, but you know, might continue with if you took a different line, like where you would bet the flop and he would call, but if you check he's gonna bet and fold. I don't think there are very many hands that fall into that category. I don't know. I mean I guess like I don't think Pocket Eights is calling a bet on the flop. Um, I do think people bet fold without intending to bet fold, like without thinking of it in those terms. Sometimes I think he could have a hand like tens or something <laughs> where it checks and he thinks, "Oh, I should bet." And then he gets raised and he thinks, "Oh, that's too bad. I should fold." You know, like yeah, sure. I think like tens and and I don't I don't think he should have ten nine suited though. So again, I really think it's like exactly tens in terms of hands that would call a bet on the flop and also bet fold if checked to. Yeah, and I guess some of the other hands that I may sort of subconsciously have in mind here are things like jack ten that he probably doesn't have given pre flop. Right. I, I started to say ten nine and then I was like, no, he probably doesn't have that. He really should. Yeah. Yeah good i i do think one interesting choice that uh where the bubble might come in even a little bit is hero's choice of raise size like he chose just to check jam for like one point uh two over one and a half like 1.6 1.7 times pot if 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 hero were to call the 4000 there'd be 16k in the pot and he's putting He's putting uh, 22. I oh, know you're right. I'm sorry. You're, it's, it's slightly less than 1.5, but yeah, it's it's in that neighborhood. Uh, it's more than so. It's 16k. Then he raises 26k more. Oh, I was thinking it was 10k more. Yeah, the, the 26 26 to a villain's all in. So that 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 includes the 4150 that villain betted in. Oh, I thought I thought I thought when no. So cutoff starts the hand yeah, with 33,000. Okay, 000. you're right. You're right. Okay, yes, it is more than 1.5 pot. I suck. <laughs> that, that I guess that makes me like check shoving a little less. I was thinking it was yeah. closer to a pot sized because then then you you have room to to bet shove turn. Yeah. You're not gonna, yeah. Does it make you reconsider? I mean, I, it doesn't make me reconsider uh, 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 wanting to check all my hands on the flop. Does no, not do the deeper stuff. Not really. I mean, a little bit, but not a lot. I, I still think I still think checking 100% is pretty good. Yeah, I think so too. But I do think it. Yeah, it I, I think there's something to be said for a smaller check raise here, though. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that you wouldn't be playing like pocket jacks or pocket nines this way. Um, I mean, I, I think even like although you could do this with pocket aces, I don't think there's really a need to. Um, I, I, I do think a smaller check raise makes sense. Yeah. 
so but i think we should still give our, our correspondent a, a nice hand here yes definitely um and i think that that checking the flop is a sort of I mean, I, I know it's it's not necessarily the most like ingenious way of playing exactly a big draw, but um, I, I do think that in you know in this exact spot, it's a good way to play a, a lot of different hands, and it happens to be a good way to play uh, a big draw as well. So um, I, I think we should give give credit to, to spotting that rather than just sort of auto c betting. Yeah, and I mean this is interesting, right? Like we sometimes say to our correspondents that they did most things right but their one mistake was so bad that <laughs> they, they'll never win if they if they play like that here we have a, a hero who made three decisions we think probably two of them are in some sense errors like like two two bet sizes that are too large but uh getting the check right is i think very very good yeah very and, and using too large of a bet size is not usually a huge a huge error yeah, especially if right. your ranges are appropriate like raising raising the same range to 2k as you raised to 3k i think would would be a somewhat larger error but you know raising a, a somewhat tighter range to 3k is not a lot worse than raising a somewhat weak uh wider range to 2000 that's right and our correspondent did did better than i would have i'm, I'm pretty sure i would have bet here so nice hand <laughs> um, although you might have saved some chips because our correspondent did not end up winning this flip um he did yeah. he did still have 20 big blinds left on the bubble he didn't explicitly say but i think there's a pretty good chance he cashed which is also a bit of a consideration i mean i think this is really too good of a hand even on the bubble to to get away from but um it's worth thinking about when, when you are on the exact bubble you know, how, how many chips you're going to be left with if you or it's not quite the exact bubble but uh, how many chips you're going to be left with if you lose the pot and in here he did still have 20 big blinds that I think is right. All right, good hand. Let's go get Tony. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey Tony, thanks for uh, taking time from your vacation for this. No problem. It's not like vacation, vacation. It's just uh, I'm up visiting my parents in Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. Wait a minute. I was just visiting my parents in Wisconsin. How, how, how are you doing? Yeah, we're here. What part? How are you doing? Uh, Sturgeon Bay. Oh, okay, I'm over in Madison right now. Oh, all right. How how are you? It's good to talk to you. Yeah, man. It's been a while. Uh, I've I've had a great year. Things are really well for me. So you you've caught me at a very positive moment. <laughs> Fantastic. I don't think also, I've ever caught you at a at a non positive moment. Uh if you caught me right after Black Friday, he would have got some negativity. <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of money uh, locked up or I had most of my bankroll online at oh. the time and it was also just like um the mental depletion of both their turning the lights off and have having all your money vanish overnight and then it was kind of partnered with I had been signed on to the WPT like six months before and I had been signed up to do this documentary three months before and I was supposed to be like the successful know-it-all commentary guy <laughs> who had like made it in poker and instead I had like sub 10k to my name or something and it just I just <laughs> felt like a huge defeated fraud and I hated everybody. Well, I'm glad things are uh, picking up for you. Yeah, no, things are good. We're, <laughs> we're straight. Yeah, so all's, all's, all's well that ends well. 
Yeah, so I mean, good year for you includes. Uh, I, sh- I should have looked this up. You, you a victory at the Borgata? Uh, WPT Caribbean. It was in St. Martin back in November. Okay. And then that led to getting third at our championship event at Borgata in the spring. Ah, okay. So I, I, had, I had mixed uh, cross streams there. All good, man. My, um, my dad actually saw you. I'm not sure which one of those yeah, he saw, but I think he was just like flipping through the channels. But he, he called me and he was like, hey, I saw Tony on TV the other day. That, yeah, that definitely would have been the Caribbean. Uh, the championship has not aired yet. But I remember your dad used to come out to, to Vegas during the series, you know, and, and kind of track you and sweat you during the events and everything. Yeah, and uh, we all ended up having dinner. I guess he, he joined one of your uh, infamous group dinners at the old um, Gaylords. Right. Yeah, he was there for one of those. How do you feel about the new um, Royal Indian Bistro? I went once and I wasn't terribly impressed and I haven't been back. I also, you know, after uh, years of both tournament experience and eating Indian food, have decided that those are two things that don't really go together. (laughs) As much as I love both, I just think that Indian food is a high variance play on your stomach. Uh, In tournaments, you, you have to be stationary for two hours at a time. So also, you know, Indian food is usually a big kind of uh, weighted, you know, heavy meal. So now I do something that's, you know, a, a bit of meat and some carbs and veggies and, and not too many calories if I'm going to be playing all night. I, I do agree with all that in theory. But the problem is that um, Gaylords especially was like the taste of victory for me. This was kind of how uh, Nate and I got to know each other a little bit better. Is we both went deep in the main event and um, I always forget, was it was it 10 or 11 that uh, it was 10 the first time. Um, so yeah, we, we were both deep in the main event in, uh, in, in 2010. And so we were like having dinner together that place every night. So now like having dinner there on a WSOP break, like reminds me of that deep run. And, and uh, it feels like victory to me, although we, we have not been going very much to the Royal India Bistro. Yeah, that is that is a nice feeling when you when you associate something on the sentimental level with the experience of victory. And did we swap that year, 2010? Because I know we both went. To- yeah, we did, and I think we were both relatively sh- or like we had the same shortish stack that year. And then like by the end of that day, you were the chip leader. I think. Day four, so we swapped on day four. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I, I think d- despite the fact that I cashed pretty deep, um, I still ended up collecting on that swap. Yeah, yeah, I, I did okay that one. I didn't, you know, go crazy deep or anything, but I, I got deep enough that it was exciting for a little while there. It was the top 100, right? Yeah, I got 50th. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy deep. Yeah, and that was, you know, like uh, mid-day seven or something. So when you've been in a tournament for like a week of play, you know, that doesn't... <laughs> you expect to be deeper than 50th. Yeah, well, not, and not only that, but you're, you're really getting down to it. And of course, you know, anytime you get chips in the main event it's just exciting there's just so much money up top and you know people are so bad in that event uh and <laughs> once it's it deeper you you really see some of the cream rise to the top and we've seen that over most of the previous few years i think uh last year was kind of an off year and you saw some weaker play deep in the main but i feel like for the last three or four years once you get down to the last few days it's it's a lot of professionals and a lot of guys who are really comfortable and experienced I think it's going to be a long time before we see a, a true amateur win again, or a, a truly recreational player, I should say. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that can happen again. There's just way too many good professionals along the way. I mean, it can happen. I mean, but it's harder every year for that to happen. What about the the WPT events? I mean, what's what's the excitement of of getting deep in one of those? How does that compare to the main event? Well, for the 
championship, it was very comparable. I mean, there was a ton of money off top. It was $1.3 million for first or something. And uh, in my case, the possibility of winning uh, two events on a tour that I work for, which from a publicity standpoint uh, would have been great. Um, the Caribbean, I was, I was less excited about. It was a smaller top prize, and it was like fun and, and interesting to, to be deep and then to be at the final table and win, of course. But it, it was also just like, I just had so many cards that it felt like it was never in doubt. I remember <laughs> years I would I, I do the online commentary for the WPT, which means that for many of our final tables, I'm watching and uh, streaming every single hand. And I see some of these guys who are like really bad at poker, like just atrocious uh, what are you thinking bad at poker and they would win events or they would get like second or third and when they would win I would just be like man I just saw this guy who's awful win an event like I just want to be once in my career <laughs> so good that no matter how bad I play I cannot lose and that me at the Caribbean like it's not necessarily that I played all that bad I just I just card rocked so hard that nobody at that final table could have won unless I just absolutely spewed it off I had a truly ridiculous amount of hands yeah poker feels really easy sometimes you know where you're just like i don't know i just like i got aces and i raised and somebody shoved and i called and then i got kings and i raised and somebody shoved and i, I don't know it wasn't it wasn't hard to win the tournament i mean when, when when things are going well you wonder how you how you ever lose exactly uh, how significant was 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 that win for you career-wise i mean I, I know for for a while you talked pretty openly about like being um being deep in makeup and and, and that kind of thing i mean, was was this like a, a pretty huge thing for you in, in terms of getting out of makeup uh no uh it cleared maybe like a third of my makeup at the time um because the score was 145 but 15 of it was immediately invested into the championship event mm. um, so it you know am i at the time my makeup was probably like three to 350 or something and that knocked 130 of it off so that was about a third um so that was one of the reasons i wasn't really that elated after i won the event like people like oh are you really excited i was like yeah it feels great to win an event for zero dollars i care uh career standpoint it was awesome you know the wpt and everyone there was really excited uh it was one of our televised events which was really important so that the viewership that's become increasingly familiar with me being this super analytical uh, online generation expert on the show can actually back up what he's talking about. And I think a lot of guys from uh, our generation and our upbringing of the forums and this super analytical, rational approach to poker would know better than uh, to think that someone winning a tournament uh, necessarily valid their career and the things that they're saying. But I think for a lot of the home viewers, uh, Tony Dunst WPT champion on my resume is really helpful for the commentary element. Did you get the sense that um, those viewers were, were sort of cheering for you? I mean, did you have like people hit, hitting you up on Twitter saying like, hey, I, I like your stuff, really pulling for you to win, that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, you know, anytime you go deep in an event or you win an event or something, you, you just get bombarded on Twitter. Um, and it's, you know, 98% positive. And that was uh, going to be my next question. I was just curious if there were people who, who looked at you more as like a, um, a, a smart ass basically, or, uh, sort of like all these internet kids think they know everything. That's not what real poker, you know, like that kind of definitely have my share of haters, um, uh, <laughs> Twitter. Um, uh, I seem to have avoided the 
title of online player, I think because of my association with the WPT and, uh, and I really think a lot of it has to do with, it's just so, uh, against everything that people associate with online players that it's almost just too impossible that an online player would be wearing suits. And so that doesn't seem to be a label that's stuck on me very often. And that's not something that you're doing just as a result of, of having this job. I mean, I, I knew you well before you had the job, and you were always the best-dressed guy in the poker room. I would actually point out that I enjoyed wearing suits more before I got this job. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true, because after I got this job and uh, I became synonymous with wearing suits, and then you know you get more exposure and more people coming up to you during events, it became so easy to pick me out of a room because I was the only guy in a suit who wasn't working. And uh, a lot of people approached me. And most of them you know, just wanted to chit-chat or say something nice or say hello or ask a question. But when you're at work, you, you just don't really want to deal with it. Um, and uh, as, as you know, friendly and as outgoing as I can be, when I'm playing poker, I don't want to be in my own zone be in my own mind and I don't really enjoy a lot of people coming up to me so I've actually toned down the way I because I got the job I asked Joe Brunson something about you know what, what it felt like to be uh, I, I just like that everyone in the Amazon room like thousands of people in there and every single one of them knows who he is and he said something like um, it's flattering but sometimes you just want to take a piss <laughs> absolutely right he's uh i'll put it to you guys this way the first three times i got recognized around a tournament or in public i was like yeah this is awesome i'm the man and then and then every time after that was awful um a lot of times people are just so nice and they just want to come up and, and compliment you know the work or the commentary or say hey man good luck in the event but uh you know when you're talking to your friends or you're just walking along listening to music or whatever it is a bunch of the time you just don't want to be disturbed and once you have that job and that position, it is your responsibility to always be pleasant. And I'm a pretty pleasant guy, but I'm not always pleasant. And I don't always talk. And I just have to, you know, suck it up when people come and approach me uh, because I understand that's what comes with the position. What was the origin of um, wanting to wanting to dress so nicely in the first place? Um. That that uh, that started much younger. Uh, my dad was a really well dressed guy. I'm I'm at their my parents' house right now, and the basement is filled with suits and jackets and shoes and belts. I mean, just a, a more wardrobe than you could possibly imagine. Our entire basement is just my dad's wardrobe and stuff he doesn't wear anymore. Not to mention what he has upstairs. So it started with him. Uh, and he started feeding me like GQ and Esquire and middle school or something. <laughs> so all these uh, visuals in my mind growing up, okay, this is what a well-dressed guy looks like. This is how a well-dressed guy carries himself. And then I actually really feel there's good science behind dressing well. People often don't understand why you would do it from like a logical perspective. I think it's almost obvious as one of those things to do is like a sort of like a life edge thing. Like, why wouldn't you take this blatant life edge? And the, and the science, you know, backs it up if you want to talk about the halo effect or some of the studies they've done where, you know, one of the studies that stood out to me was they, they put, they observed people on a street corner and they put a plain clothes man on that street corner. And before the light 
for the walking signal switched over, he would take a step into the street and nobody would follow him. But when they put a guy in the suit on the corner, if he took a step into the street, all these people would take one or two steps before they realized what had happened. And something very subconscious about the way people dress that affects us. So it seemed to me, um, you know, both uh, an aesthetic and a stylish choice and also an intelligent choice. This is supposed to make me want to wear a suit? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, you want okay. to have... If you want to have that kind of effect, if you want to be a low-key guy who's just kind of doing his own thing or doesn't really garner that kind of attention, then I would – or doesn't want to uh, to create any kind of influence, then yeah, you, you know, the suit is not for you. But I, I, I sensed even you know, when I was younger that I would want to do something – uh, that required people having a certain kind of faith in you or certain kind of, uh, you know, belief in you, your ability to pull something off as it were. And, and the suit is very helpful in that manner. That's a fair point, but there are errors of mine. I would rather other people not emulate. <laughs> not a look, uh, for everybody and it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. So you still find it uncomfortable after, after all these years of wearing suits, some people will claim that it feels good to them after a while. Uh, no, cause you just, you know, you can't move around that quickly. You're afraid to tear something. Uh, you've got this jacket and if it's hot, okay, you got to take it off and set it somewhere. I will say that I have a lot of pockets, which is useful. I have a lot of pockets when I wear suits. Um, but the, the practical uses of it aren't that high. I mean, I would much rather just be in a jeans and t-shirt most of the time. You said you knew from a young age that you wanted to have a job where you kind of uh, commanded influence. And I mean, you, you've sort of ended up with that in poker, but I wouldn't think poker would be a, a logical choice for that. No, it's not at all. Um, although I recognized that ambition, I, I recognized a stronger ambition, which was to have a job or a means of income where people couldn't tell you what to do. Um <laughs> That's important to me, and that's important to poker players almost unanimously. We hate being told what to do. We hate other people setting the guidelines. We hate the idea that someone we consider dumber than us gets to tell us what to do. Um, and I thought that poker was this great way to escape the expectations and the restrictions of most careers and the of what society puts on you. And so long as you can generate enough of your own income from poker, you can be whoever you want to be. And you can fund uh, what other, whatever other projects or pursuits you want to have. So there's like a, a, a several stage ironic process here, right? Where you uh, weigh several things that you want and and choose, even though it's maybe not all that influential or you, the 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 expected value of the amount of influence you have is not that high poker to so that other people can't tell you what to do. And you end up in a position where you can't walk down the hall without anybody in the world being able in effect to tell you what to do because you have to be nice to any old person who, who, who stops you. Does that, does that strike you as, as funny or ironic? Does that make you regret anything or is your extremely cool job and an awesome influence worth it? It is ironic that that's how it's ended up. Um, and it's not lost on me. Uh, but also I always found it unfortunate and I always kind of detested that I saw these other guys who had, you know, achieved really high positions in life and it, and it maybe gotten a really like, you know, cool job or something where, you know, they were, they were treated as the center of attention where they were paid a whole bunch of money and they were supposed to be a public figure or something. And then they treated people like crap. 
And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd see them do that. Uh, I really, to me, what, uh, what the way I, I measure a person is, is very much in how they treat other people, even if it's inconvenient to them or even if it's not what they want. Um, I, I have a certain respect for those who go out of their way to be respectful to others. And I always felt that although it's, you know, kind of unfortunate that now I have to be more careful with what I say and how I carry myself and that, you know, uh, there's this sort of careful what you wish for situation when you get those things that you want, like uh, a degree of attention and influence at income, uh, that it was worth it and that I I would hope to set uh, a better example than some of those guys I saw coming up. So it's important for the listeners to know just how not hypocritical Tony is being here. Um, I, I met him at a party about seven years ago. He was really nice to me. We, we, our paths sort of crossed several times in the summer of 2007. And, uh, ever since then, if I pass him in the hallway and we're within 20, 25 feet of each other, he will give me the biggest smile and come over and shake my hand and say hi as if we're best friends. And we're not, even though I like him very, very much, you know, like we don't know each other all that well. So uh, how hard is it to to maintain that sort of level of 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 outgoing sort of generosity with your time and attention, um, even with sort of schmucks like me who kind of know you and who like you, but but uh, who you don't know that well? You always had very uh intelligent and articulate post two plus two. And I respect that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what you're, you're asking has in fact been tough because like you described, I've been pretty friendly to a lot of people over the years in poker. And now that's kind of boomeranged on me because after I got the job uh, and when you're in a position like that, you know, all those people that you met, they remember you because something very unique happened to you. And so if they see you around, they say, hi, and it's accumulated in such a way that I can't remember them now. And now I feel like this incredibly phony douchebag for <laughs> really friendly to people and been like, hey, man, you know, remember that time when we X, Y, Z and you were talking about this and that. And now I see them a year or two months later and I can't remember their name or I can't remember where we met or I've met someone two or three times and I can't remember their name. And I feel so awful about it that I actually feel a degree of anxiety when I attend like parties or like really high energy uh social events and i've become increasingly reluctant to attend them because i am so afraid of those awkward moments i like i like tear through my phone i take notes on people's names where i met them i'm looking up facebook i'm asking people hey what's that guy's name how do we know him exactly i know that i've met him before what is his place in all of this uh, and it and it's made me a little bit paranoid around groups because i'm i'm terrified that somebody that I was super nice to is going to come up and be like, Hey, Tony, what's going on? I'm like, hi, I'm Tony. Nice to meet you. And they're like, no asshole. We met nine months ago at the Aria and you were super friendly to me, but now I realize you're just a fake. And- <laughs> I did that to two different, at least two people last summer. One of whom was Ed Miller. <laughs> <laughs> I just stared straight at him and was like, Hey, I'm uh, sorry. Have we met before? I <laughs> Really weird, awful feeling, isn't it? Yeah. I felt pretty shitty. Yeah, so I've become, um, I've become more reluctant to meet new people. I can tell that I've become more standoffish. Um, and I've become more sensitive about how many large social events I expose, my tel- my, expose myself to. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious because I remember like a specific summer or maybe it wasn't a summer, but I remember like a specific period. And I don't remember exactly when this was. It seemed like a, a real 
breakout moment for you in your career? Like suddenly, I mean, I, I kind of knew who you were, but you used to be just like another person posting on two plus two, who I think came along very slightly after I did. So I kind of thought of you as like the next generation of, of two plus two poster after me. And I had kind of had you lumped in with a bunch of other people whose names now I probably wouldn't even remember. And then suddenly you were like winning everything. And I was like, oh, wow, this Bond 18 guy is, is really taking off do, do you have a recollection of a moment when when you were just kind of like tearing it up i think i think people were calling you the new risen oh yeah that would have been early 2007 because that was before a lot of people had really made the necessary adjustments in online tournaments i had some very good coaches in the form of adam junglin uh noah steven is it steven daniel steven davis steven stupidwitz okay oops, oops. Uh, uh, noah sd as he was on the forums and, uh, and and Lucky Chewy was a great help at that time. And I was playing an absolute ton, pretty much seven days a week back then, because I was living in Shanghai and like way out in the middle of nowhere in Shanghai. And I had no friends and uh, nothing really to do. So I just played all day. I read two plus two posts all day. I asked my friends strategy questions all day. And so I was able to uh, advance fairly quickly at a time when tournaments had yet to become competitive. The other thing I remember you doing was it didn't for a while you had like an open invitation that anyone could send you a, a hand history and you would review it. Yeah, that, that was true somewhere around that time. I just, yeah, I just had tons and tons of time on my hands and I loved poker. So that was true. What were you doing uh, out in the middle of nowhere around Shanghai? That is a long story and I'm happy to get into it, but, uh, yeah, we, we've got at least half an hour to fill. So abbreviated version is I was living in Australia in the previous year and not long into my trip and I was there to uh, attend school as a uh, foreign exchange student. Uh, I got into a relationship with a Chinese Australian woman named uh, Selena Lin who's now uh, sponsored with Poker Stars. And uh, I was there in Australia for a year and we were living together for about 11 months of that time. And uh, at the end of my stay, I found out from the immigration department that I had overstayed my visa by five months. I, had, I was supposed to apply for an extension of my visa after the first semester of school, but poker players are notoriously bad at dealing with the real world and paperwork. Um, and this was especially true when I was like 20, 21 years old, and I, I didn't understand that there could be some severe consequences for not doing those things. So uh, they realized my mistake, and I went down to speak with them, and they said, we understand that this is an honest mistake. You're just going to school, but this is a serious infraction. You've overstayed your visa by five months, so you're banned for three years from Australia. And this was at a time that I wanted to immigrate there. And uh, I came back to the States. More semester of school, um, Selena came with me, but the United States would not give her an extended visa. Actually, what happened was she had what's called the Visa Waiver Program, which allows citizens of the U.S. and multiple other countries to travel throughout that system, throughout those countries, for three months, up to three months at a time, no questions asked. Um, and so when she went into the consulate to ask about getting an extended visa, they said, no, not only can you not have the extended visa, but because of your relationship to Mr. Dunst, we consider you an immigration risk. So we're going to take your visa waiver program away and you can't get back into the U.S. for the discernible future. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, you can thank 9-11 for that one. Uh, so she was sent off and I couldn't get into her country. And it turns out China, uh, communist China, its doors open. <laughs> 
$20 for a visa. And if you want to extend it, hey, throw us $20 a little bit later. Um, and her mother owned an apartment in Shanghai. And so we decided that we would go and stay in Shanghai and I would play a whole bunch of online poker until we could use an immigration lawyer in Australia to resolve my issue. And it seemed like that worked out reasonably well. You got very good at poker. She actually got pretty good at poker as well. Yeah. And then she became uh, one of the uh, biggest name sponsor pros in the Asian region after poker stars picked her up around like 07, 08. Was that tricky being in a relationship with another poker player? Uh, yes. And I am, I would never do it again. Uh, and I, I would proactively tell my friends not to get involved with a female poker player. Um, there's some really cool girls in poker and there's some phenomenal female poker players, but I will not date them and I would never advise my friends to date them. But there are happy couples in poker too, right? There are, but I believe that's a thing. <laughs> can I, can I press you for details here? What, what, what would be the problem with, uh, shacking up with a female poker player? Uh, the biggest problem is that you're, the stress that comes from poker no longer comes from the games that you play. You are now enduring the stress of two people playing poker, and uh, women are often very vocal about the stress that they <laughs> And, uh, you know, I don't think it's good for a person's mindset to have to deal with that much stress, which is not originated from their own playing. Uh, I also just think that the poker world is a very strange environment, a strange and difficult environment for women. And uh, I'm kind of impressed uh, by the girls who do choose to to inhabit it and make their profession uh, in the poker world. I think it, it can be a tough environment for girls. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, it, when I'm at a poker tournament, I want to be able to do whatever I want 100% of the time. Um, I, I don't even want to bring a girlfriend outside of poker to a poker tournament anymore. I'll happily travel with girls, but I do not want to travel to a poker tournament with girls because I'm there to play and to concentrate on that tournament. And I am not trying to deal with anybody else's issues. And that would apply to my friends. You know, if I had a friend who I traveled to poker tournaments with and he was a problem or he created drama or he was just kind of whiny and complainy or just fill in the blank. If he did anything that I felt demeaned my professionalism, he's out. I'm not going to hang out with him a bunch. You know, I really feel that a lot of people, when poker was easy, did not approach this game with a sense of professionalism. And the older I've got and the longer I've been in this game, the more I feel that that's really important for sustaining a life in this game. And uh, I don't think that having your girlfriend around during a poker tournament is a great way to do that. I know some couples who make it work and that's their thing, but it's still not something I would advise. Conversely, what about a girl who was not whiny, did not bring her stress into your life or interfere with your profession in an inappropriate way? Would that be okay? Yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm not going to gamble it. <laughs> Fair enough. It just it, it it sounded a bit like like the argument or the explanation you gave applied equally well to. Uh, a relationship with anybody in any profession where there was stress or with anybody who who brought work stress into your life together would that would that be a fair characterization of something you're not looking for uh, as a oh. poker player who's who's looking for a relationship it's 
when someone comes home, so I'm, I'm in a relationship with a law student right now and a soon-to-be lawyer, and she comes home and tells me about the problems from her work, I only vaguely understand them. And <laughs> not really, they don't add to my stress at all because I don't necessarily understand what's going on that much. I'm just kind of like listening and soaking it all in and whatever. Okay, fair enough. And, um, and I really like that she's in a competitive industry and that she's driven and she's ambitious. But in poker... You are immersed. If you're playing like online poker with your girlfriend, you're just immersed in for like eight or nine hours. They're right next to you. Uh, And if they react diversely to the stress, as many people and as many uh, female poker players do, uh, that's going to affect your quality of decision making. And again, I would feel the same way if I had a guy friend who like really got tilty or or uh, emo or just whiny uh, while I was playing with him. He's out, too. Um, I mean, most seriously, like I really think that, you know, professionalism, concentration, all of these are, are undervalued and I don't want anything to distract me, uh, from, from my decision-making and from my focus on the tables and, and also, you know, what I want to do after the session finishes, uh, and I won't get into specifics, but I know, you know, what I want to do after my session is normally just mess around with my friends and turn my brain off in some capacity. And my girlfriend might still want to talk to me about serious things or she might, you know, want to go out somewhere or she might uh, want to go to dinner. So she just might want to do something that's not what I want to do. And after a long session, not what I feel like I can. I'm totally happy to uh, be it again, girlfriend or friend or whatever else. When I'm not working, I am a very relaxed and accommodating guy. And when I am working, get the fuck out of my face. Um, I'm trying to concentrate here. And. I don't want to be standoffish towards someone. I don't want, you know, and I don't want the stress that I'm feeling from poker to ever emanate outwards towards my partner. And that normally doesn't happen, but I understand that there's a risk of that happening because poker can be very stressful. And even someone as uh, professional and robotic as I have become with it uh, can, in fact, take the stress out from poker on others, on whoever's in my proximity. And I just don't really want the person I'm in a relationship with to be part of that. I also, you know, if we really want to get into it, I believe in a compartmentalized lifestyle, by which I mean, you know, your girlfriend, your job, your friends, your friends from different networks or different whatevers are kept separate enough so that if one compartment floods, you know, (laughs) and the rest of it doesn't sink. And uh, kind of getting into my approach to life mentality more so than poker, but it's one of those things that uh, I've become a big proponent of. So that's interesting, but I really want to follow up on a different interesting thing you've been saying, which is uh, the importance of professionalism, which I think is very correct, but I also think combines – I think there's a certain tension uh, between that and other things you're saying about how you and other people get into poker uh, so that they don't have people who are stupider than they are telling them what to do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I I think that's similar to desires a lot of people have to wake up whenever they want and be as sloppy as they want about about other things. And um, perhaps in – in a lot of cases, there's there's a certain irony again where people get into poker uh, to to be lazy about things because they think they won't need to set a schedule or do paperwork or do research or or 
you know, spend hours and hours looking at spreadsheets. <laughs> then they try to get good at poker and they realize that game selection is really important and that games don't just start and end whenever you want them to. And that you have to look over a lot of spreadsheets and databases of your own play. If you want to get good at it. Um, is this something that happened to you? Do you think that's a, a basically correct, uh, 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 a characterization of what happens to people i mean do you think that's that's a source of irony in the poker world do you think that's a major reason players fail these days it's a lot of questions sorry well it is i think part of the reason you see a high failure rate is people's lack of commitment work ethic and professionalism but one thing i would say is the difference between what you're describing as a poker player and what you're describing in a profession is the autonomy um, if somebody at my job tells me that this is due at this time and I need you to look over these spreadsheets and it needs to happen in there this way and it's going to be structured in this manner, I have to find it. But if I want to do a ton of work at poker, but I don't feel like doing it until 3.30 a.m., that's up to me. If I don't feel like doing it till next week because this week, I don't know, I just want to watch football and sit on my couch, that's up to me. If I want to go take a vacation to place X, Y, Z. If I'm a poker player, I can. If I have a job, I can't. And so there's all this autonomy that comes with being a poker player that's afforded to you. And the catch is you have to be able, you have to be disciplined enough to institute your own policy of professionalism, to expect from yourself this work ethic, this commitment, this willingness to get better and to improve and to be objective. And it's to be your own, you know, your own boss. And uh, I'm a really tough boss on myself. I expect a lot. I, uh, I, I believe in hard work. Um, but man, you know, when somebody else starts telling me what to do, they might even be telling me logical stuff and I still want to tell them to go fuck themselves. It's just something innate inside myself and it seems to be inside so many other poker players. We just hate being told what to do. But I definitely agree that a lot of people and especially a lot of young guys and particularly during the boom years of poker thought that poker was this great escape, this great way to not have to work. Um, but I thought of it more as a way to escape job the job and the society and uh i don't have any qualms with working i like working i'm a workaholic but i have big problems with a job and with people controlling my destiny i don't like that at all how much of and and this might get into things you don't want to talk about a lot but is that a difficult part of doing television etc like surely you don't just surely there's a lack of autonomy there in some ways, right? You'd be surprised. I have an, I have a surprisingly autonomous position within the world poker tour. Um, I, I really have to thank them for that. Uh, they basically, they, they're, I don't, you know, I know who my boss of bosses is. I know who the top boss of the company is, but I'm not sure I could tell you who the like boss directly above me is because nobody really talks to me that way. Uh, nobody makes those demands of my time. Nobody tells me it needs to be it needs to happen now. Um, I'm given expectations, but when I get things done and how immediate and how they're done, a lot of it is left open to me. And it's usually just like, Tony, you know, we're going to film on this date eight days from now. Uh, we're going to get you the material you need two days from now. And sometime during that six day duration, you need to get us the segments so we can look them over. And sometimes I get them done early. And a lot of the time I send it to them at like 2 a.m. the night before filming. And I'm like, hope you guys have time to check it at work tomorrow. Um, and they've been awesome about giving me the space I need 
to be my weird eccentric self. But uh, it's definitely a concern of mine that I might go so far into the corporate world that I have suddenly given up that autonomy that I worked for by becoming a professional poker player. When you say give them the segments, are you- does that mean you're like filming this your, yourself or you sort of have control over when it gets filmed? Writing the segments. Okay, so they that makes more sense. And just use and uh, some film clips from the guys at the table. And they say, uh, you know, sometimes they do some of my work for me. And they say, here are the hands we've targeted because we have questions about them or there's a lot of action or there's really great table talk going on. And then sometimes they send me a packet of hands and they say, we're not really sure what to do for a segment this time around. Take a look and pick out whatever you like. Or even if they send me stuff and they say, here's the segment we have in mind. If I don't like it, I can just veto it and say, nah, I want to do a segment about something else. And nobody ever fights me. Nobody ever, you know, tries to push me to do something that I don't want to do. It's been a really, it's been a great experience at the WPT. All around, it's just been an awesome job to have. And I do feel very lucky to have it. What sorts of hands do you tend to um, pick out for th- that are interesting to you to discuss? Like what, what makes for a good hand to talk about on air? I often like to do sequences of hands. I think sometimes you see patterns in people's play. So sometimes someone has a a leak in their play and it manifests itself in two or three hands that you see over the course of an episode. Um, I like hands where the personality of the players come out. Um, You know, guys of our generation are not terribly talkative at the table, which I think is smart, but not necessarily great for televised poker. But some of the people you get on television final tables uh, are there to create an impression, are there to joke around and, uh, you know, try and make a name for themselves. So sometimes they really get involved in these big hands and sometimes tensions rise and people don't like each other. So when that kind of stuff happens, it's great material. Um, I enjoy when two high level players uh, square off in a hand where there's a lot happening. There's a lot of considerations to make. Um, I also enjoy being able to illustrate why a very good player knows better than to make the mistakes of this less experienced player. And I also like when someone is just a blatant jerk and I get the tee off on them. Uh, that's not very often, but every once in a while you get that guy and uh, those ones are fun. Are there ever hands that you've shied away from discussing because you thought it was going to be too difficult to explain like what, what was interesting to you about the hand you thought like a, a more broad audience wouldn't really be able to understand or appreciate? Well, when I write the segments, I give them back to my producers who are recreational poker players and professional uh, television people. And they don't understand poker that well. Like they get it. They know how it works and they understand some elements of strategy but they're probably not that far removed from the way our viewership thinks about poker. And they can often address the concerns that the viewers might have. So if I get uh, too esoteric or too sophisticated, they may say, hey, um, this might be great analysis, but it's going to go over everyone's head. Can you water it down a little for us? And sometimes I have to sacrifice accuracy for relatability for the viewer. Do you, is it like an active goal of yours to educate your viewers about poker and like make them better poker players or are you looking primarily to entertain? Uh, I would say two thirds entertain, one third. Um, I, I would like for people to uh, 
to be intellectually stimulated by the segments, but at the end of the day, I view my job on a television show to entertain. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I wanted to ask you too about your gig. Uh, I mean, w- well before the WPT thing came along, um, you had what I thought was a, a pretty sweet job. Um, basically, like a you were writing a a year-long blog for Full Tilt Poker, and uh, they were paying you a fair bit to just like travel around the world and play poker. I sold I sold them the blog for a 90-day period, uh, and I did I did uh, pretty good payment for it, uh, and that was in the heyday of the sites really trying to pump content out there and really trying to acquire new customers. So they were paying quite well in those days. And uh, it actually wasn't an ongoing job or an ongoing relationship I had with them. I really only did it once, um, but it was pretty sweet, like you said. And it was something that just happened because I can't remember exactly why it happened. I think someone just gave me the idea to approach the companies about selling my blog because they were so desperate for content. And then I was kind of surprised at how much money I was able to get from them for it. Uh, And that was a pretty sweet gig and everything. But uh, it it just didn't end up being ongoing. Did you – you don't still travel that aggressively for for poker now, do you? Uh, Yeah, I've been homeless for the last year. Okay, so you are still uh, running around the world. Very much so. (laughs) Um, Does that get tiresome? Uh. Yes, in the sense that some days you're really tired because you have to get to the airport at a weird hour or you've been planes and airports for like 10 hours or, you know, you're, you just came from a time zone three hours away and now your sleep's all screwed up. But I've been doing this for almost 10 years now, so I've acclimated pretty well. I sleep great on planes. It's almost like talent show level ability um i just pass out the second we we take off and then i wake up right when the captain comes on and is like "Ooh, attention everybody we are 20 minutes from our destination you know flight attendants please like that's when i snap awake uh, and i love to read so you know even if i can't fall asleep for once then i just hang out on the on the flight and read uh or in the airport i just hang out and read and that's you know i'm in heaven um so that's not terribly hard on me um yeah, you know, it's it can be a little expensive at times, um, and and it can be a little tiring, but it's totally worth it, is the way I would put it. Logistically, how does the homelessness thing work out? I mean, do do you find that you have to plan pretty far in advance to make sure that you have a place to be? Uh, not really. Um, you know, if I have a residence, it's still at uh, Andrew Lichtenberger, you know, Lucky Chewy's house in Las Vegas. Um, the one that was profiled in the. Um... That race full movie. My pool house um, there, uh, and now I have a much smaller room that I pay. I basically don't really pay him rent, but every now and then I, I just give him money for using the room as storage. There's just like my clothes <laughs> in there, a whole bunch of my books in there, and then a bed in the corner that I sleep on like two or three months of the year. At this point in my career, I know so many people in so many different cities that there's often a couch or a spare room that I can sleep in. And when that's not the case, you can do something like uh, Airbnb or some percent of the time uh, the WPT is arranging the hotel for me. Or I can you know, just book a hotel separately myself 
or, you know, I can just find a friend who's like, if it's an event where I'm going to be there for like two days or something and just leave the second I'm out, well, then I'll just find a friend to room with. So there's a lot of, uh, of ways around this. And while I would say I'm a little better prepared than your average poker player, I don't really go that far out of my way to arrange everything. How does this meld with the professionalism? Because it seems like sleeping on sofas has kind of the opposite effect of wearing a suit in terms of like feeling, you know, confident and in control and, and ready to go out there and succeed. Yeah, I don't like doing the couch thing if I can avoid it. I just accept that it's, you know, a reality of the lifestyle when I have to pull it off. But, you know, if if to me the professionalism is being willing to answer the call whenever one of these companies calls me and says, hey, we need you in this place you know, 800 miles away, three days from now, can you be there? Um, I, I'm able to say yes, a really high percent of the time. And I'm able to, to be present and to be positive and to look prepared once I get to that place, um, a, a big percent of the time. And it's enabled because I don't necessarily have, you know, uh, high maintenance expectations about having some great hotel room and having all my suits pressed and everything. You know, if I if I have a friend with a comfy couch and a not messy slash noisy place and some hang my suits up and maybe, you know, iron them beforehand, I'm good to go. Now, how do you find a poker playing friend without a messy apartment? Uh, I want to give away all the secrets, Andrew. <laughs> Uh, is there anything that you do find sort of, um, I guess we talked already about the the attention being sometimes a, a little too much, but um, is there anything else where, where you found like um, the job turned out to be not what you were uh, hoping for? Uh, let me think about that one for a moment. Not really. No, I don't, I, I don't think there's very much at all to complain about. I, I've got a great job, great position. It's, you know, it's not a ton of work per se. I just need to be available. I need to be responsive. Um, you need to be, here's one thing. You need to be in my position more careful about the kind of comments you make about other major figures in the industry. So in my job, I of course have a lot of personal interactions with some of the very big name players in poker. And I don't always like all of those people. And it used to be that I could just get on Twitter or get on my blog and describe in great detail about why big name professional XYZ is a total asshole, and you should all think that too. Um, but now, if we need that total asshole to attend our events and to say positive things about the WPT, then an ambassador from that company cannot be publicly blasting them. So I've had to learn to bite my tongue. Can I ask for stories that don't involve names? <sighs> It's there, there's nothing really that interesting, man. It's just you know you hang out with people, uh, you get to know them, you, you you go to a few dinners, you're at the bar a few times, and they say something kind of prickish, or they just don't treat people all that well, or you just hear a few shady things about them, or some business dealing they once had, or somebody they owe money, and uh, and those kind of things accumulate over time, um, and and now it is no longer my place to be the one who uh, lights them up on social media. Gotcha. Well, I mean, it seems like you've achieved a fair amount of what uh, Tony 10 years ago would have wanted to, probably more than what Tony 10 years ago would have thought possible to achieve in poker. You're a WPT champion. You've got a pretty sweet uh, job with, with, with the kind of influence that probably Tony 10 years ago didn't think he was going to have through poker. 
are, are there goals you have for your poker career that you haven't accomplished yet or just keep winning? No, I have a lot of goals outside of my poker career. Um, at this point in my poker career, yeah, you know, just keep winning, uh, just keep playing well, showing up every day, treating people well, uh, don't do anything shady. I know that sounds like a weird goal, but if you've been in poker long enough and you see all the shady shit around you, you know, eventually you're just like, hey, you know, don't do anything shady to people and you know, just, just be level with them. Yeah, um, plenty of people manage to fail at that one. Managed to fail at that one, uh, and I'm I'm kind of prideful about the fact that I don't really have very much bad blood in the industry. Um, so no, within within poker, it's not like I think my career is complete. It's just that uh, I feel pretty content with where I am right now. And so of course I would still love to win more WPT events or World Series bracelet or some I would love to win an event where first prize is seven figures, you know, for the obvious reason that I would have won seven figures and also just because it's one of those things on my resume I, I haven't done yet. Um but there's there's not a lot of things on the poker career bucket list that have yet to be ticked off. Well it sounds like you've had uh quite a lot of success and you know you've you've worked very hard for it um i think it's a very inspiring story anything you've anything you uh, wanted to talk about that we've left out okay can, can oh, i yeah. ask one I'm more sorry, question please. before that yeah. it's just uh we have a lot of avid listeners who read who listen to the show and tony has a lot of time to read so so would you mind telling us something you've read recently that's really lit your fire yeah absolutely uh let's let's talk books um yeah i'm, I'm, I'm glad you came back to that nate because i meant to ask about that too <laughs> for all poker players to read is thinking fast and slow, uh, by yes. And, uh, another social psychologist whose name is eluding me, uh, who I believe is deceased, but Tversky, Amos Tversky. That's it. It's like 450 pretty dense pages of every cognitive leak that you could think of. Basically, if you wanted to know why people make these kind of mistakes or act in this way or have this, very foolish subjective belief about xyz the answer is probably in that book um and there are some really eye-opening studies in it um i really enjoy the parts where you know they discuss all of these professions that we consider prestigious or legitimate and they basically prove through statistical analysis that those entire professions are superfluous useless uh, <laughs> And obviously the people in those professions don't uh, don't want to engage that kind of dialogue, but there's all kinds of stuff in that book that I think would be really useful and interesting to poker players. What so about you're not even oh, go oh go ahead. No, 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 no please. You Nate, you. Okay. Uh, I was just saying for, for people who need an extra push, that's longtime listeners of the show will know that that's not even the first time that a poker player has come on and we have said, what have you read lately? That's really light, lit your fire. That's been amazing. And and that book has been the answer. Um, and, and I myself recommend it. I think it's great. So yeah, that is, go. Yeah, that's one of the best books I've ever read. It's, it's not always the most fun read, you know, yeah. it's, it's going to take you a while to get through it, but it's one of the most enlightening books I've ever read. Yeah. It's, it's the best work of popular social science I've, I've ever read. And it's, it's way up there on a lot of other lists. It, it's, it's extremely good. And I enjoy a, a lot of books similar to that. You know, the guys who, who write sort of uh, social science journalism. And I know there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, discussion and arguments about how valid are the, claims and stipulations and conclusions they're coming to in these articles 
Um, but it still gets you thinking, and uh, some of the stuff I think is is pretty evident to be you know factual or approaching factual. Um, and I think the poker players on the whole, that's a genre that they would appreciate. So you're talking about like the guys who do you know Freakonomics. You're talking about you know Friedman and uh, Malcolm Gladwell and. Uh, I guess Steven Pinker, who I haven't started to read yet, but I've read about him, and uh, I think he's somebody I'm going to get into next. Uh, just all these guys who are interested in how the brain works and why we make the decisions that we do. You know, poker players are our entire job. Make the best decision that you can using the available information. And so it's fascinating to us to study how and why people make the decisions that they do. What about on the fiction side? Do you read fiction ever? I do read some fiction. Um I, I like novels. I, I actually like a lot of American classics. You know, I'm a big fan of like Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Um, Gatsby's got to be up your alley. Way up my alley. Huge. Gatsby might be my favorite book. I think that's just a great, great book. And it's so it's so small and quick. Uh, such a lean read. And um, basically after Black Friday, uh, you know, as I was discussing with you guys before, most of my bankroll was flushed. A lot of my confidence was flushed. I didn't really have the drive to go out and try and rebuild my bankroll yet. And so all I did for like the next two years uh, was was read and try and write my own book. Um, and I just, I went, tore through a whole bunch of books and I have such admiration for guys who are great storytellers, who can make you just, who can just suck you into the page and, uh, and make you want to read more and want to know more. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different authors I could, I could get into who have that effect, but I love American classics. Um, some, some newer guys that I would throw out there. I love Michael Lewis. Uh, I think that's another one that's probably popular among poker players, uh, and just popular in the mainstream on the whole. Uh, I really like Bill Bryson. Uh, who I think, again, many poker players would appreciate. Um, and who's written about Australia. Australia, so you know that one. Sun, what was it In a Sunburnt Country, was it? Yeah, I, I, think, I don't think it's Sunburn, but something like that, yeah. A sun, sun, something like that. Um, he's, yeah, he's a great writer. Uh, I, I like... Uh, I like anybody as a writer who makes me feel smarter after I put the book down. Yeah, that's a good criteria to have. So before I interrupted, Andrew was was uh, giving a small summary of, of your career and how satisfying it all must be, and, and and asking if you had anything else you wanted to to ask or talk about or anything or, or plug, uh, but before we wrapped up here. Oh, to plug. Uh, well, the title of the book that I'm working on is The Internet Kids, and it's about online poker players, um, but it's not about poker, um, and so. I was a very, I, I, I'm on edition five of this book I've been trying to write. It has been the hardest thing uh, I think that I've ever tried to do. I think it's actually harder than poker in many ways. Uh, the, I think the variables are higher. Um, there's just not very many, you know, this is absolutely correct absolutely any incorrect parameters like there are poker someone can you know describe okay here's the basic strategy here are the things you absolutely must do and you absolutely must not do and that doesn't really exist in writing there's like the elements of style of course and there's you know some fairly obvious grammatical things that you would teach people but uh you know it's it's very open-ended and and you have to make it appeal to your reader and hit the right demographics and all this stuff. So the, the book I'm working on is called The Internet Kids, and it's about myself and four of the guys that I 
grew up with in the world of online poker and how our careers and personalities evolved and changed over time. Um, and although it exists in the world of poker and online poker, there's no poker in it. There, there's never any discussion of a poker hand. I try and minimize all the lingo that would alienate mainstream readers. Um, I really want this to be a story about poker players, but not a poker book per se. So this is autobiographical. Uh, it is, yes. Well, uh, 20% of the book is about me. The other 80 is about the, the other major four characters. And then, of course, there's a bunch of peripheral characters who make appearances, and they're all real people. Uh, and there's no pseudonym, so we'll know all those guys. Um, there's that. Of course, I would plug Bet Race Fold for anybody interested in, in the world of online poker and want to check out a movie about it. That's going to be on Hulu for sure, and we're going to be on Hulu. Um, it's kind of up in the air on whether we're going to be on Netflix right now, but we are definitely going to be on Hulu or are on Hulu, so check that out there. Um, of course, the World Poker Tour, I would always plug those guys, and uh, I know that the episode where I'm at the championship final table is coming up in, like, October, so check that one out. Beyond that, uh, no, not really. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your vacation. Cool. Yeah, no problem, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. No sweat anytime. time.